is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily, and yep, that's a name change. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. We spent the last two years on the show covering the pandemic. It was the world's biggest story. Shifting gears now, focusing on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, more accusations of war crimes by Russia as this maternity hospital in Ukraine is apparently bombed. We speak with a woman in southern Ukraine in an area currently under Russian control. The vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, traveling to Poland, has taken in a huge number of Ukrainian refugees, but this comes as the Pentagon rejects a plan to hand over Polish fighter jets to Ukraine. And sanctions against Russia, they are ratcheting up with the U.S. officially banning Russian oil, but could that move backfire? We start with this attack that Ukraine's president's calling an atrocity. Russian airstrike hit a maternity hospital in a port city. Maripol trapping children, others under the rubble. David Sheffers, a senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations. So, David, from the outside, it seems obvious Russia's committing war crimes. Is that the case? What is taking place in Ukraine is so self-evident in terms of a daily barrage of criminal conduct by the Russian military. And we know that that conduct reaches all the way to the top to Vladimir Putin. There's no misunderstanding here about command responsibility. Uh, That is very evident in this case. So that being said, obviously when one tries to investigate and draw up indictments against um, alleged war criminals, one has to be extremely precise and demonstrate to the court that uh, the, uh, the targeting of civilians and of civilian structures such as hospitals, um, first of all, occurred, and then secondly, occurred through some sort of command structure that directed such targeting. Now, sometimes there's a defense in war crimes cases that this was an errant missile or an, a mistaken application of artillery shelling, that there was no intention to hit the civilian population. But the circumstances of Ukraine are so obvious that these this shelling is hitting a massive amount of strictly civilian structures, obviously with civilians inside, as well as civilians who are simply trying to escape along, you know, quarter routes within cities Uh, to escape all the shelling, and yet they still get shelled. I think that's going to be a very difficult defense to raise. And let me just add one kind of interesting wrinkle for Ukraine. This is a war of aggression. Um, So you have on top of your classic war crimes and crimes against humanity calculations and investigations, the fact that all of this has been unleashed under the umbrella of a war of aggression, which is illegal. So for a military commander to then say, oh yes, I invaded Ukraine illegally. I mean, let's accept that argument that I invaded it illegally, but I I still have the right to engage in combat with all of these weapons and just blow civilian uh, neighborhoods apart. And you have to prove that I was not making a mistake in doing so kind of defies the logic of what a war of aggression unleashes. In other words, you shouldn't be firing any of these munitions at all because you started it 
under a war of aggression. So there's the case. What do you do with it if the aggressors don't care? Well, in this case, they do not appear to care, which is not going to be very good for their defense. Um, The International Criminal Court has jurisdiction to investigate Ukraine and this war of aggression and the other atrocity crimes. 39 state parties of the International Criminal Court referred Ukraine in an unprecedented step to the ICC prosecutor for investigation um, earlier this week uh, or late last week. And so um, that means that there will be and there is now an official investigation of all of this with very talented expert investigators and a very talented prosecution team in The Hague, they can arrive at indictments, which will not be, uh, uh, they won't be impossible with respect to the leadership, which is sometimes very difficult in war crimes because you have to work up the chain and sort of prove that a leader who didn't write anything down or say anything actually was responsible for unleashing the hell on earth. In this case, we know that Putin unleashed hell on earth. Uh, He says it publicly. He incriminates himself every day. He leaves footprints everywhere. If he is indicted, then I would argue, and his generals, I would argue that the sanctions regime, which has been severely imposed upon Russia, will not be lifted unless two things at least occur. One, the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine is restored with the withdrawal of Russian forces. That's basic. And second, they will not be uh, released in total, at least, until there is a surrender of indicted fugitives from justice to The Hague. And that means that there will be internal pressure to depose Putin and the generals, get them out of the way, they're toxic, they're pariah, and let Russia recover as a society from their misbegotten leadership. This is what happened in Serbia after the Balkans war. They got rid of Milosevic, who was indicted, sent him to the Hague, and then they started to recover. So I I would expect that that will happen with Russia. It's implausible to think that the sanctions will be lifted without the surrender of these individuals to justice. David Sheffer, senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations, a former ambassador at large, for war crimes issues. We've spoken to a number of people in Ukraine dealing firsthand with the effects of Russia's invasion. Today, we're joined by Sofia. She lives in southern Ukraine near the Sea of Azov in an area currently occupied by the Russians. She says it's strange right now, the Russians in control, but they seem surprised Ukrainian people aren't happy about it. Uh, Sofia, tell us more about this. In the first day when the war started, uh, all troops, all territorial defense squads, uh, they were withdrawn from Verdansk. So local authorities uh, never officially explained why they did this. But many people say that uh, it was done to protect the city from bombing and uh, from civilian deaths. Uh, Maybe you've heard uh, in Mariupol, it's near uh, to Verdansk. Uh, it's been horrible there because people are dying. Uh, only today, um, they have reported that uh, Russian troops killed about 1,300 of civilians. Uh, and uh, from that point of view, um, um, withdrawing troops from Verdansk was kind of a smart uh, choice, but... Um, well, I understand that the priority for Ukraine now is to protect the northern front, so like Kiev, Kharkiv, uh, all the cities in the north. 
uh, from Russian troops. Um, so, and on the other hand, when um, Russian forces occupied the city, uh, well, we saw them. They looked a little um, confused, you know. Um, you know, they uh, they look like they don't really know what they're doing here, why they're here, uh, or like they were expecting to see something else here. I believe I believe actually maybe uh, they thought they believed their own propaganda, and maybe they thought that we would welcome them here. And of course, we're not. We don't. We don't want them here. Uh, so basically, yeah, that that's quite strange. I actually saw uh, a woman uh, here in Verdansk in the store. Uh, she was shouting to one of Russian troops, and uh, she was saying um, she asked them to um, to give up to uh, you know um, to. to Okay, so to to give up, and uh, well, this woman she was unarmed and she was yelling basically to the military, to Russian military. Uh, they looked depressed and they looked confused, but unfortunately, they didn't give up yet. So, so what is it like day to day there? We said you're staying with your little brother and your family. Um, yeah. Do you have? Is there? Food. We've heard all these different reports about how hard it is to, to get stuff, you know, a week and a half in now. Can you go outside? Can, can you kind of go to the store? You mentioned you were there. Give us, yeah. give us what it's like with them around all the time. Uh, well, you know, currently the situation in the city is kind of under control. Uh, local authorities, uh, they say that uh, they won't uh, they won't cooperate with Russian troops, but basically uh, troops are controlling most of administrative buildings. Uh, but still, it looks like they have occupied the city, but they don't know what to do next. Um, well, for now, we do not see them uh, doing something, uh, setting their administration over here. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Russians blew up uh, a gas pipeline, uh, Mariupol Berdyansk gas pipeline. So basically, uh, we are uh, we are uh, now without gas or any heating. But you can go to stores, um, and uh, well, unfortunately, uh, Russian troops they do not allow any Ukrainian humanitarian convoys, uh, any humanitarian aid into the city uh, that carry important food, uh, medicine, other essential provisions. And instead, they are bringing their humanitarian convoys from temporary occupied Crimea to film propaganda stories for Russian TV. They want to show um, uh, to Russians that people here in Berdyansk and southern regions that they are happy with Russian government. And to uh, prevent such videos, to prevent these fakes, people here in, in Berdyansk, uh, we go to peaceful protests with Ukrainian flags every day. We sing Ukrainian national anthem. We tell Russians uh, that we don't want them here. We ask them to leave the city, to uh, get out. And, um, well, as I say... As I said, uh, I believe this uh, rally, this uh, protest, they uh, are quite confusing for Russian military. Right. Sophia, let, let me. Well, I'm curious. First of all, what do you do in in Ukraine before the war began? That is. Um, 
Well, I was uh, I actually lived in Kiev for six years. I uh, uh, I worked there. I have uh, I've studied there um, for four years, and then uh, uh, I worked there for two years. Uh, but uh, before the war started, just the day before the war started, I was feeling that something is coming. And um, as my family live in Berdyansk, I just wanted to see them. I wanted to come here and uh, check if everything is okay. Uh, I was really worried uh, to be alone in Kiev, and I wanted to see my family, so I uh, I, right. uh, I went back here. All right. So, so I, I, day I'm also curious, uh, Sophia. You had mentioned before that you were in a store near a store, and there was a woman there, a Ukrainian woman, who was yelling. I think you said at uh, one of the yep. Russian soldiers. Uh, have you? had any communication with any of the occupying Russians? Uh, I, I, I presume you speak um, Russian, yes or no? Uh, yeah, I speak Russian, but um, what, the only communication I had with them was at the checkpoint when we entered the city. We actually, um, me and my family, um, we moved to uh, our friends for two days when the war started and then we came back to Berdyansk uh, and we went back the day was occupied it was at the end of February I guess February 27 28 and uh, we saw the Russian equipment uh, and we saw Russian troops uh, they have checked our cards uh, they didn't ask for any documents we just said that we were returning home and they said oh, yeah okay we, you can go so basically, that was uh, that was it. Uh, as I as I'm aware, they're not communicating with any uh, civilians. Uh, they're just trying to, um, um, well, they're trying to pursue our local administrations to give up the city and to cooperate with them. How crazy is it to you that, that some of them do yeah. seem? confused that they do believe their own propaganda that they thought they were coming yeah, in to, yeah, to, to free you guys from something they are uh, absolutely i mean uh you you know uh it's crazy because uh i don't know if you have seen the videos where russian prisoners of war call their mothers these are young guys like 18, 19, 20 years old, and they, they tell their mothers that they're in captivity, that their friends have died in battle in Ukraine, that they uh, were uh, commanded to kill civilians in a foreign country. And they ask their mothers to do something. They ask them to go to protest, to ask Putin to stop this. And their mothers, <laughs> they do not believe them. They just they just say, well, what am I to do with it? What can I do? I don't want to, I, I can't do anything. And uh, as far as I know, more than 12,000 of Russian uh, uh, servicemen have already died in Ukraine. And Russia do not even want to take back their bodies. And this is the first case in the history, I think. And it says more than it needs to, that than needs to be said about Russia. So, for they, you, uh, how? Let me interrupt yeah. for a second. Uh, I'm curious also. How you said you're staying with your little brother? How old are you? How old yeah. is your little brother? Uh, I'm 23. My little brother is 15. Um, we are staying here with uh, our stepmom. And uh, my dad uh, is in army right now. Okay, so so tell us a little bit about the emotional 
told that this must be taking, I mean, you're only 23 years old. That's pretty young. Your brother is even younger. And only two weeks ago, you were living in a peaceful country. Now yeah. you're living in a, in a city that's occupied by the Russian army. That must be an enormous drain on, on both of you and your entire family, for that matter, emotionally as well as physically. Well, uh, of course, it's it's pretty hard. It's pretty confusing. We don't know what's uh, what's going to be uh, next or what's going to happen. But uh, we are strongly convinced that we're going to win. Ukraine is going to win. We know it for sure because we uh, we are sure that Russia is going to lose. It's uh, it's just how it <laughs> should be. Uh, that's. Um, uh, yeah, that's for starters. And uh, basically, you know, we've been in war with Russia for eight years now. Actually, it it hasn't it, it didn't start uh, on February 24th. Russia has occupied Crimea and our southern regions eight years ago, and uh, we um, we knew it's coming. We were hoping that. I don't know, the authorities in Russia would change, the, the, that Putin would uh, lose election or uh, something else would happen. We, we all, of course, hoped for the best, but we were prepare, preparing for this. We were feeling they, uh, Russia, I mean, they are convinced to destroy Ukraine as a country. And therefore, we knew it's coming. And now we are united as never. We uh, all of, uh, I uh, constantly speaking to my friends uh, from around Ukraine, and I see them helping, doing their best, uh, joining territorial defense or volunteering or trying to uh, help uh, people with a um, uh, with a house and so on. So um, that's why it, that's that is what uh, holding us together. That's what. Uh, keep us going. Yeah, and that's the sense we get from everybody we, we talk to. S Sophia, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Coming right up after a short break, what should have been a straightforward trip to Poland for Vice President Harris, well, it's turned uh, awkward. Vice President Kamala Harris traveling to Warsaw to thank Poland for taking in so many Ukrainian refugees, but things are not so simple. This after the Pentagon turned down an offer from Poland's government. Poland wanted to move some military planes to a U.S. base so the planes could then be handed over to the Ukrainians, but the Pentagon rejected that. Journalist Phil Itner is in Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, uh, explain more about what's going on. The problem here for the Ukrainians is that they don't, they're trying to make the Russians pay for their air superiority, and by making them pay, hopefully diminish that air superiority. And they, they're, they're saying they just don't have the equipment to do it. Um, the president, uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, has asked for a no-fly zone, but that seems to be a non-starter because that would put NATO uh, troops, uh, uh, forces in the air uh, in a deterrence uh, against Russian uh, air power. And, and, of course, you know, the consequences of that could be, well, they could be pretty catastrophic. So... Uh, the Ukrainians have said, second to a no-fly zone, we want as much anti-aircraft or we want these MiGs from Poland. Well, moving MiGs, uh, certainly flying them in from any border uh, region, uh, is going to be problematic. They tried to maybe perhaps send it to Germany and, and then 
uh, you know, fly them out that way so that Poland wouldn't be uh, directly connected. But all of this machinations have fallen apart because at the end of the day, it's been determined certainly by Washington, and I was just monitoring the Pentagon press briefing today, um, that that's just a non-starter because it would be too provocative. However, the Pentagon does say that they are willing to step up their um, portable systems, their uh, their man-pad uh, short-range anti-aircraft weapons. Um, the Ukrainians will uh, be happy to get that, but at the end of the day, unless they can stop those jets, those those are the real problems. Um, the the, the fast-moving jets, they can knock helicopters out of the air, but those fast-moving jets that are used to attack um, any number of targets within Ukraine, and of course, tragically hearing some of the civilian targets, uh, the Ukrainians say uh, it's just not enough. So there's growing frustration with the West here inside Ukraine. Okay, so the Poles were going to give us the jets and they wanted us to give them over. But again, that's a little too close to comfort for the Pentagon because then it looks like we're literally giving these arms. And if one of these um, Ukrainians in a, in a Polish jet shoots down a Russian airplane, then we're uh, too close to that, that NATO line for, for comfort from, from our perspective. So that's from the Pentagon. And then they're also talking today about some of the weapons. Again, more evidence of some of these banned weapons that, that Russia is either using or thinking of using, right? There's a lot of disturbing talk coming out of uh, the Ministry of uh, Defense in Moscow um, and also the Foreign Ministry. They are floating these ideas that there are chemical weapons plants within Ukraine funded by the United States and that they would be using, they would either use that against Russian troops or the accusation is. Uh, that the Russians have been making is that the Ukrainians would use it against their own people, which shows an alarming sense of cynicism uh, and a clear misunderstanding of, of the people of Ukraine. But the Russian accusation is that they would create a false flag using chemical weapons, blame it on the Russians, and then, of course, the international community would be obligated to come in, and this whole thing would be ratcheted up. I must admit, I must note, however, um, that I was in the I was in Georgia in 2008, and we heard exactly the same thing, and we heard it again in 2018. This is almost a page that they took from their playbook. You'd think they'd switch it up now and again, but this does seem to be something the Russians like to accuse the countries that they would like to, well, frankly, subjugate, and say, well, the Americans are are, are creating these illegal weapons, and we better do something about it first. And then uh, even if it does get used, the Russians tend to say, well, it was all, um, you know, it was all by design. So uh, despite those reports coming out of Moscow, very few people think there's any credibility. I, I am curious about one thing, Phil, because uh, as we pointed out, you're in the sort of the western portion of Ukraine. And I know you haven't been able to get around the entire country. But are there Ukrainians that you've encountered who are supportive of the Russians? Oh, absolutely not. No. Um, uh, I, I, you're right. I'm situated in Lviv. Um, I, it's my decision that, uh, this is probably the best place I can be because this will allow me to, um, you know, get information from around the country and, and be able to disseminate it. I have a network built over two decades of contacts and people with the, both within the government and the military and just uh, Ukrainian civil society. Um, and almost to every Ukrainian I've spoken to, nobody thinks that the, that, that the Russians uh, coming in uh, are a good thing. Nobody stands for that, with the possible exception 
of those two breakaway republics out in the Donbass, but they've seen eight years of war, and they're just happy to see the, uh, the shooting at least decrease or move on to other locations. So, uh, and there are many ethnic Russians out in the, in the far east of this vast country. So the, there has been grumbling. I have heard from out in those breakaway republics that we're just glad the fighting stopped. Thank God the Russians came in and now the fighting has stopped. That, that is a, just a rump part of this country. Um, this country is, as we have discussed, uh, Mike and Charles, in the past, uh, this, I have never, I've been coming here 21 years, I've never seen this country as united as it is. This is a, this is a country that is just solidified in its, in its determination to fight off this, uh, this attack. I've, I've seen young, I've seen young men and women going to, uh, these artists, uh, what were artist unions here in Lviv, which is kind of an artistic town, a very bohemian town, and they're turning all of their canvases into camouflage coverings for, for armed positions. We've got uh, welding locations and car mechanics making um, making uh, tank blockades. Uh, so you know, it, it, this is a this is a nation completely mobilized. Right. To try and stop the Russians, and I've never seen it like it before. Phil Littner there in Lviv. Phil, thanks for talking to us again. Many were calling for it, and now it is official. The U.S. has banned oil and gas imports from Russia in an attempt to strangle the Russian economy while they wage war in Ukraine. There are fears the move could backfire here in the U.S. We're already seeing it with record high gas prices. Milton Israti, chief economist at Vested, a communications firm. Milton, could we see a recession here in the U.S.? Uh, we could. Um, I think the, um, uh, the the pressure is not so much this, this last gesture of cutting off Russian oil imports. They're very small for the United States. Uh, but we have effectively pushed Russian oil uh, off-world markets. I know there's a there's a carve-out within SWIFT for them to continue to sell oil. That's being done for Europe's sake, not ours. Um, but uh, the Russian oil is not moving. The carriers will not carry it. The insurers will not insure it. So it is as if the world has banned Russian oil. This is going to go harder on Europe than us. But if the world goes into recession, we will. Uh, there's also the chance that the Federal Reserve is going to start raising rates to deal with the inflation, and that also contributes to recessionary pressures. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, does the Fed now find itself in a bind? Because before this war in Ukraine, uh, as you know, and as they said, they were intending to raise interest rates because of inflation that was brought about by a resurgence of, of trade, I suppose, after the pandemic started to, to wane, at least in the western part of the world. Uh, but now that we've got this war going on, uh, might their solution to one problem cause a different one? Well, yes, it's a very uh, a tightrope the Fed has to walk here. They can't not act because the inflation was more fundamental than just the war. If it was just the war, they could say we're going to weather this thing until we get Putin to back down and so forth. But the inflation was much more fundamental. It was even more fundamental than supply chains because we have printed enough money to float uh, an entire Navy. Uh, so there was there was this pressure. The Fed has to deal with this. But if they go too fast, they're going to precipitate a recession. So they're walking a very fine line here. They're going to make their first announcements later this month. We'll see how they're handling it. They could easily screw up. 
Does it help that we still have, they could easily screw up. Does it help that we still have some post-pandemic yearning to spend, at least among some people? But then again, if you can't afford anything or you can't find something, then it doesn't matter if you want to spend your money. Well, I think the supply chain problems, except for this oil issue with the war, the supply chain problems were beginning to dissipate. So the idea of finding what you wanted was becoming less of a problem. But as I said, the inflation was there before uh, we did anything with this fighting with our sanctions. And the Fed will have to act in some way to quell that. Otherwise, it's going to get built into the economy and we're going to have a lot more trouble in the long run. As far as the recession is concerned, I don't think we are facing anything imminent in this respect, even with the cutoff in oil, um, because there is some of this momentum in the economy, this post-pandemic recovery. Yes, a lot of the money has been eaten up by inflation, but I think that'll carry us through to the end of the year and into 2023. But after that, a lot depends on the Fed and a lot depends on how soon we can resolve this situation in Europe. You know, Mike and I were, were chuckling, you may have heard, when you when you sort of said um, that the Fed could screw it up. And and that actually leads to the question, you know, people tend to think that these people on at the Federal Reserve, that they're all these sort of, I don't know, geniuses, and they, they know exactly what to do to steer the country. But historically, as, as you know, the Fed has often screwed things up. So how could we be confident that these people really know what they're doing? Uh, we can't. Um, That's I very mean, comforting. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they're, they're, they're some of the best in the world, and I'm not taking away from them, but there's only so much that can be done. And the Fed, uh, if it moves too slowly, the inflation gets embedded in the economy. If it moves too fast, it precipitates a recession. So it's like breaking on ice. Of course, you're in L.A. You don't know much about that. It's like breaking on ice. You press too hard and you skid out of control. You press too softly and you don't stop. So the Fed, the Fed has a very difficult job here. They may be the best in the world. Uh, they're better than I am. But that doesn't mean that they can't screw up. They have in the past. We just crossing our fingers here and hoping for the best, which is what we always do, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, at, at least Jay Powell is aware of the problem. Three months ago, he wasn't. So that's encouraging. All right. Milton Ezrati, chief economist at uh, Vested. In an interview with a German newspaper, Ukrainian President Zelensky says he doesn't think Vladimir Putin will use nuclear weapons in a war. Zelensky believes Putin is bluffing and his threats about potentially using nukes are a sign of weakness. You only threaten the use of nuclear weapons when nothing else is working, says uh, Zelensky. Every use of nuclear weapons, he goes on to say, means the end uh, for all sides, not just for the person using this is an odyssey original you can find this podcast and others on the odyssey app apple podcasts and google podcasts and on stitcher